Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Shane, did you watch the alien UFO videos that were released by the military? Well, I did watch them when they came out, uh, but I was very, when they were unofficially released, but I was very pleased to see them released in their full glory. I'm sorry, the what now? (laughs) You know, the space aliens, the ones that Shane has been investigating for years, the ones that the government has been hiding from us. The unidentified aerial phenomenon, and they are phenomenal. Why did you get him started on this, Tammy? <laughs> Was that strictly speaking necessary? You know, this is a an era in which things we never thought would be existential threats are manifesting as existential threats. And I think that we need to take the lesson of this pandemic, which is that we have to prepare for the alien invasion. Shane, what should we do? I think that actually a proposal for for national defense has already been laid out for us in recent days. We have loads of disinfectant and bleach, and I'm pretty sure it kills aliens. Just shoot it into your veins. Just shoot it. Arm the planes with bleach missiles, and the bleach fires out, and it spreads on the thing. This is why Trump started Space Force? (laughs) See... You don't give him enough credit. It all makes sense. Both members of Space Force will be armed with with bleach guns. Those two guys from the video are now the only members of Space Force. (laughs) Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Blame It on Beijing edition. I'm Shane Harris. I am stocked up on bleach, y'all. Got a lot of bleach. Found a special on bleach. I have a gallon of industrial strength bleach in my kitchen. Dilute that and sell it. The funny thing is, is you always look at bleach where it says, do not drink and think like, who needs this? Who needs to be told not to drink this? But now we know. Now we know why that warning is on there. Now, Susan, he did not suggest that people drink bleach. He suggested getting it in there like a kind of cleaning. Like a kind of cleaning. That's, that's an exact quote. I did hear about these whiskey pods, and Shane did have some good ideas. So oh, yeah. I'm just saying, bring it Remember together, those? guys. Wow. And whiskey is like an antiseptic. Sure. I just want I just want to remind you that those whiskey pods, the ones that we actually had on Rational Security texting about, were made by Kate Klonick, who is now my partner in the daily show uh, on YouTube in lieu of fun. And so if we want whiskey pods for purposes of internal cleaning, I'm sure Kate can oblige. I've definitely been doing a lot of that kind of internal cleaning while in quarantine, so I think I'm in pretty good shape. 
Yeah, if booze is the answer, I'm as healthy as I've ever been. Yeah, indeed. I am here in the remote studio with my friends near and far, uh, Susan Wittis. Susan Wittis. Did I have to just say that? We love you <laughs> so much, so Susan. You're family. You guys, I may have been disinfecting a little before I came on the podcast. <laughs> if this means Ben and Tammy have to watch my kids, it's fine. <laughs> I'm here with Ben Hennessy Kaufman. <laughs> with Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittes, and Tamara Kaufman Wittes. Hi, everybody. Hi. <clears throat> We're in week, is this week eight? Is it week seven? Week eight. Week 300,000. Nice. That's It's awesome. week no longer has meaning. Exactly. Time is meaningless. It's the flat circle. Uh, before we get started with this week's episode, a special announcement. There you go. That's right. Did you like that? We paid extra for the sound effects. Uh, two weeks from today, everybody, we are going to do at our normal time we record, which is 2.30 on Wednesdays, we're going to do a live show taking advantage of the the wonders of what do we call these? Like webination, webinaring? What's the what's the term for like Zoom? Is it tele teleconferencing? Video, Video conferencing? conferencing. Well, whatever it is, we're gonna rock it, and we're gonna do a two thirty show on Wednesday, uh, and you will be able to to join us or ask us questions. There'll be details on that forthcoming, uh, so watch out for that on our show page and our Twitter feed, and we'll have more information for you about that next week. But for now, mark it on your calendars that on uh, May thirteenth, two thirty, come join us. And for those who can't join us, of course, we will air that as a regular episode that week. So be on the watch and uh, come check us out. Uh, but on the show this week, Democrats and Republicans finally have something to agree on. China deserves more scrutiny for how it handled the COVID-19 pandemic. Kim Jong-un is alive, maybe, kind of, sort of. Uh, and the courts take up the argument on whether Congress can sue the executive branch. Um, so we're going to start with China. just want to hit some high points at the top here because, you know, the, the question of of China's role in the pandemic has taken many, many forms and many questions have been raised over the coming weeks. But it largely, I think, kind of boils down to big questions about whether or not the Chinese government moved too slowly to contain the outbreak uh, in Wuhan whether the Chinese government was honest about the scope of that outbreak, how many people were infected, how many people had died. U.S. intelligence, we've reported at the Post, says, no, they weren't being honest about it. And now there are all kinds of new questions being raised about a laboratory in Wuhan that was doing research into coronaviruses in bats uh, and whether or not it possibly could have been the source of the infection, although I want to be clear, we'll talk more about this, but that there's no there's no evidence of that. But but nevertheless, big, big questions are being asked about this. And Tammy, this is something that at a time when Republicans and Democrats seem to not be able to agree about anything, there is bipartisan momentum building now to confront China and not merely on the question of the outbreak, but even on some, some longstanding issues and dilemmas. So talk about how that is playing out and some of the examples that we're seeing of how Republicans and Democrats are coming together on this. Well, interesting phrasing, Shane, because I think that both Republicans and Democrats have reasons to blame China and to raise up the profile of China as uh, the new big bad, the adversary that the United States needs to mobilize against 
and match capability for capability. But I'm not sure that it's something that Republicans and Democrats are coming together on. I think it's something where they both see this issue as one that is of advantage in talking to the public. You have a, a fearful public, a public that is kind of tr still trying to figure out how this virus got so bad. And so blaming China is a nice way of deflecting. And it's also an issue that I think Democrats and Republicans, each for different reasons, think that they can use to beat the other party over the head. So Chris Murphy um, had a piece, an opinion piece in War on the Rocks the other day, beating up on Trump for the way he praised China and minimized the problems with China's response to the virus by way of saying Trump was wrong to defund the World Health Organization. You know, this is just his way of trying to cover up his own bad behavior and his own tolerance of China's bad behavior. And then you have Mitt Romney publishing an op-ed, you know, that talks about China's role in the virus, its dominance of our pharmaceutical and medical supply chain, and then lurches from that to listen to the sentence, but China's stranglehold on pharmaceuticals is only a small sliver of its grand strategy for economic, military, and geopolitical domination. Yes, people, that's right. It's a new Cold War with China. And you know, this is um, it's it's a great way, like I said, to uh, explain to the public who can be blamed for this national crisis. It's a great way to point at something to which you as a senator or a president can provide a policy response. Well, I'm going to defund the who because they're too close to China or reelect me because Joe Biden's soft on China or in Chris Murphy's case, de-elect Trump because he's soft on China. You know, so it's playing a lot of different useful political roles. But at bottom of all of this is the public's desire to find someone to blame. Well, and the question I guess that raises too, and maybe Ben, you want to tackle this is, okay, that's great politics. And right now it seems like obvious politics. I mean, from the, the sort of the crudeness of calling it you know, the China virus or the Wuhan virus, which we had some reporting on that a little bit, how that originated in the post this week, to kind of everyone finding their reason to, to, to beat up on Beijing. But does it make for smart policy? Well, let's start with the observation that this is rooted in a number of things. And one of them is the truth. You know, it's not the only thing. It's also rooted in xenophobia. It's also rooted in people's political calculations. But at bottom, there is a truth here. And the truth is that whether the virus was organically the product of something in a bat around Wuhan or whether it was uh, the result of an accidental release from a lab around Wuhan, uh, the Chinese government, in a quite aggressive and authoritarian fashion, covered up the scope of it. They are almost certainly still lying by an order of magnitude about the scope of the outbreak in Wuhan, the number of deaths there. And the result of that was that the rest of the world, including the United States, which, you know, all of which made our own mistakes as well, uh, did not really have a sense of the degree of menace that this a virus posed. And I think it's reasonable to expect that if China had been more forthcoming about what was going on and about how bad it was, 
that the uh, other countries of the world would have had more time to prepare and kind of now, like we may have screwed it up anyway, but I do think it is perfectly reasonable for people to have a lot of anger at and want some accountability from the Chinese Communist Party here. So I, I do think as, as a preliminary matter, let's just acknowledge that a lot of the anger and rage is quite justified. Now, the second question is, does it make for good policy? And this gets to a, a, more, a more difficult question, which is, okay, let's say you decide that, uh, as many people have, that the policy of the last 30 years across Republican and Democratic administrations of uh, bringing China into the world and sort of facilitating its entry to respectability with the assumption that uh, uh, good things domestically in the way of political reform would follow, if you buy that that has been basically wrong and that China is now in a very advantageous position and has behaves very aggressively that way, is there really a way to, like, what is the appropriate way to recalibrate and shift gears and have a more confrontational posture with respect to China across issues from trade to national security kind of espionage issues to cybersecurity to uh, regional hegemony questions like the South China Sea to questions like the Belt and Road Initiative? I mean, these are very hard questions. and you know, I don't know that I think that the coronavirus itself changes any of of one's orientation toward those questions. It is a really good reminder that this is not a friendly or normal government and that we have to think about it in a in a quite adversarial kind of way and in, up to and including that they will behave in ways that get or contribute to getting very large numbers of Americans killed. Yeah, look, I, I agree with everything that that Ben and Tammy just said, and and I certainly agree with with Ben's point that you know there there is uh, you know a fundamental truth here about sort of Chinese responsibility, um, both for sort of the origination of the virus and certainly uh, failure to provide candid information and warning to the rest of the world. And um, in the long term, whenever we uh, look back on this pandemic and try and learn lessons about how to uh, prevent these types of viruses from emerging in the future, how to develop better early warning mechanisms. Um, that's all going to be an important point worth sort of delving into um, and a valid one and one we're going to need to be clear-eyed about. Um, then there's a second question, and it's really a different one. And whenever we think about who is responsible here, and that's the question of responsibility for what we did with the warnings we did have, what we did, you know, the, the sort of the botched U.S. response to what we actually saw coming. And what happened there really had nothing to do with China whatsoever. Really, the responsibility is is squarely placed at Donald Trump's feet. And so the Republicans are, are playing a pretty obvious game here of attempting to distract from the more urgent second question, which is, why did the response get botched and how do we unbotch it so we can respond to the immediate and present emergency? They want to point to, well, where did this virus come from? And China lied about it and sort of look over there. And, and it really is about 
uh, distraction and, and diversion and attempting to take what is the secondary long-term question and attempting to make it sort of the, the, the primary uh, question and, and, and to suggest that anybody who would say otherwise is, is really about being soft on China. I think the unfortunate thing is that that is combining with sort of electoral politics and, and the presidential election in a way that each candidate has incentives and Joe Biden has incentives to make this about who is tougher on China. Um, and the problem with that is that it actually kind of takes the bait and directs the national political conversation to the question of Chinese responsibility and broader issues of sort of, of, of Chinese strategic posture and policy. Um, and, and that means that we aren't having the conversation that we really, really need to be having right now, which is where are the tests? Where are the personal protective equipment? Where are, uh, you know, serology tests? Where is evidence-based medicine and science? Where are the plans, responsible plans to reopen the economy? Where is the stimulus check, right? All of these really urgent things. Um, it's much easier to have this, this conversation about China. Um, but, but I actually think it's really unfortunate that the Democrats are, are taking the bait on this one because it, it just doesn't get us anywhere. Susan, I want to linger on one thing that you you, you kind of pointed to there in, in in your remarks, which is this question of that's being asked, I think, largely by people in the administration and Republicans in Congress about what more specific responsibility China might bear for this, specifically this uh, virology institute in Wuhan that some people are raising questions about. And and I'm, what I'm curious is for your thoughts on is. This feels to me like a, a strange kind of distortion of intelligence. We've seen a lot of reports out there about, well, people in the intelligence community are asking questions. Okay, well, lots of people ask questions. Um, we've seen a lot of scientific commentary that the likelihood of this coming, coming out of a laboratory uh, situation where it accidentally got out seems quite low. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. But you can, I can already sort of see how this is being turned by some people as a question of like, well, the U.S. government knows some things here that you might not know. And I'm curious, well, you know, that sets off alarm bells for me right away, not because I am willing to embrace that idea, but I'm skeptical of it as, 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 a, as a first order proposition. Like until you sh reveal some more of what this information is, there's a mountain of science to contradict you. And it has, frankly, echoes of Iraq and weapons of mass destruction to me and this idea of trying to build a narrative and a convincing case based on information that the public mostly never sees. And, I, and I'm curious if you think that there's a risk of that happening here or, or, or do you think that this is actually just kind of a, you know, a transparent political effort by, you know, some people in the administration to unconvincingly point the finger at this one lab and say it might have been something that came from there. Go look. Yeah, so I think it's a different variation of that, which is that we're seeing the types of questions that did exist sort of with Iraq and weapons of mass destruction and partial intelligence and bad intelligence and, uh, you know, sort of a, a situation in which the reality just isn't currently known. And so people are working through lots of different hypotheses and that merging with a right wing media ecosystem that is taking 
kernels of truth and spinning them into, frankly, conspiracy theories and, and assertions that are not supported by the evidence. And then whenever the mainstream media or democratic politicians uh, or even sort of scientists attempt to push back on that and saying, now, wait a minute, there isn't evidence for that. Or the way you are talking about this is designed to stir up racial animus rather than have an actual sort of evidence-based conversation about the origins of this virus that can then sort of be thrown back as, well, you just don't want to, you're soft on China. You just don't want to blame China. You want to blame the United States. And and, and this is all about sort of your accommodationist stance. And so it, it really is sort of the, the bad faith two-step of spinning out these sort of conspiracy theories and then creating a situation in which it becomes very, very difficult to engage in good faith on the underlying actual evidence without sort of getting sucked into that. And the bottom line here is it's all distractionary. There are more urgent pressing security questions and intelligence questions on the table based on not what happened before, but what is happening now and how are we moving forward? Are we getting good information about the state of play in other countries? I I think it's just this irresistible sort of rabbit hole of getting sucked down is distracting at a moment in which we sort of we don't have political attention to spare here and we really have to get focused and stay focused on on the right questions and and Chinese responsibility for the origins of the virus is not the right question right now. Tammy, you get the last word on China. Yeah, I I think Susan actually raises an interesting point here because look, This is a massive crisis, and it was a crisis for which we aren't prepared. And that means inevitably, inevitably, there are going to be people saying this was an intelligence failure. Why didn't we know that this was coming? And so there's immediate scrutiny of what sources we had, what cables were flowing in, what was in the PDB. You know, there's scrutiny of the fact that the State Department, you know, pulled out of our consulate in that area, you know, several staff members who were supposed to be looking at this, the safety of biomedical labs in the region, um, and thereby blinded us to what may have been security failures in these labs, or left us blind when the virus broke out in that area. And I think that this, this tendency, it's not only what Susan is saying, that it's distraction and it's politically useful and there's a degree of xenophobia. I think it's also a really natural tendency when we get hit by an unexpected crisis for people to say, why did the government fail to warn us of this? What was the intelligence failure here? And sometimes there is a real intelligence failure to be uncovered and to learn from. Sometimes there's not. Sometimes there's just surprise. Well, one place we can be sure has no coronavirus is North Korea. Segway, Shane. <laughs> you like that? I haven't <laughs> lost my game entirely. Uh, <clears throat> but that's not what we're going to talk about. <laughs> the, uh, the reassurances from uh, the, the, I don't know what we call it, the administration of Kim Jong-un, uh, the regime that there are no coronavirus. But where is Kim Jong-un? Uh, this has been quite a mystery. I don't think he's been seen in public for, I think we're going on two weeks now. Uh, and there was a frenzy of speculation 
recently prompted by a CNN report uh, that I believe said uh, to the effect that U.S. officials were monitoring reports that Kim Jong-un may have fallen gravely ill. And there were uh, reports like that circulating in some of the, uh, I think, some of the dissident media channels. But now the South Korean government is saying, no, we think he's alive. We've reported at the Post that it appears, for based on other sources, that he's alive. Um, Susan, why is it so damn hard to know if this man, this leader of a country, is dead or alive? And, and why does it matter? Yeah, so I think this is a pretty good illustration of how incredibly hard of a target for intelligence collection North Korea is and how alarming it is to have a nuclear-capable country for which we have so little insight. So we aren't worse off than we were in the past in terms of knowing what's happening inside North Korea. So notably, when uh, Kim Jong-un's father, Kim Jong-il, died, uh, the United States didn't actually know that until it was announced on North Korean television, right? And so two days after it had happened. Um, And so sort of this inability to know what is happening inside the country um, is just a a longstanding issue. And it means that U.S. intelligence is in many cases, using derivative intelligence from allies, derivative intelligence from adversaries, right? And and piecing together, you know, sort of trying to 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 see the puzzle picture based on having sort of fifty percent of the pieces on a good day. And so, you know, there apparently is some chatter about. Uh, Kim Jong-un having undergone heart surgery, potentially having been ill. He missed an April 15th public commemoration of his grandfather's birthday, sort of a very, very important public event in North Korea that, uh, that uh, you know, sort of North Korea analysts were surprised and, and thought that he wouldn't miss this event, but for being really, really gravely ill. There was the bizarre twist of TMZ reporting that maybe uh, Kim Jong-un was dead. Uh, you know, sort of the celebrity gossip site weighing in, no one else being able to, to confirm or corroborate it. They heard sure. it from Dennis Rodman. Rodman. Right, from Dennis Rodman, <laughs> who, who may be in a better position to know than the United States government, for all we for know. Um, and then we have satellite images of Kim Jong-un's train and whether or not that means that he's at a particular location. And so, you know, look, it, it's, it's hard because you have to piece together lots of different sort of elements of circumstantial evidence to, to make a best guess, and, and nobody really knows what's going on. Um, the South Koreans tend to be uh, sort of best focused on this. And so, you know, I, I think it's notable that South Korean intelligence is willing to come out, not on the record, but um, but attributed as South Korean intelligence sources to say they don't believe that this is uh, that this is true. They do believe that he is still alive, although, you know, we, we just don't know the current state of his health. And, and certainly uh, something is going on right now. Um, you know, but look, this is really revealing of the fundamental weakness of Donald Trump's sort of buddy to buddy, leader to leader approach to North Korean diplomacy, which is that it actually is very superficial. We do not have 
diplomatic ties that allow us to get additional information or to build trust about representations about uh, a leader's health or uh, continued existence uh, in in the world. And, you know, that that any sort of progress that's made based on the individual relationships of two people can go away in a second, either through the changing of an administration or because somebody dies or, or gets sick. And it has revealed that the United States is currently really, really unprepared to address the possible realities of what could happen in Pyongyang after Kim Jong-un's death. And so, you know, I think the weight of reporting at the moment does suggest that he is probably alive, um, but a little bit of a wake-up call on the the need to get focused on and refocused on on the question of North Korea, Um, because if Kim Jong-un does die, um, that is going to raise very, very serious and urgent questions that the United States is going to need to have an answer on on sort of what our our posture is, what our uh, intention is to support our allies, and and what uh, we are even capable of doing in terms of diplomacy um, to to help potentially shape what the world might look like in in that situation. Ben? Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. I I do think there are some tea leaves here that are plausible to read as an analyst, right? And they are as follows. One, the regime almost certainly, to my mind, would have produced Kim Jong-un were it able to. It has been conscious of the fact that world media is speculating about this, and it has gone ahead and released letters that he's supposedly written to the leaders of other nations, including uh, warm-hearted humanitarians like Bashar al-Assad in Syria. And I think you can infer from that that they're kind of conscious of the fact that this no-show is is causing people all over the world to scratch their heads. And if they could have an event where he were you know, there in public and supervising lots of people and Kim Jong-uning, I I think they probably would. Instead, they have basically said nothing and allowed, you know, Shane to publish that, you know, he saw a picture of the guy's train at uh, at a resort as the major evidence that he's alive, right? And so I think that's a fairly weak statement on on the part of the regime, no offense, Shane, but um, like I think I think it is notable that they have not produced Kim Jong Un, and that leads me to think that we probably are in the realm of the something seems to have happened department. The second issue is that South Korean intelligence has been pretty forward leaning, as Susan says on the uh, "he's alive, don't believe the hype" uh, stuff. And I think they probably have a reason to be doing that. And so my best read on it is, A, something happened, and B, he's not dead. But it's something significant enough that they're not producing him. And so I I think there is probably some reason to to think that there's something real going on there. And some of the ferment and discussion is the chatter that's coming back is probably not unrelated to anything having happened. Tammy. 
I wanted to make a little bit of a broader point. I mean, first of all, just to say in response to Ben's tea leaf reading, we have no idea. Um, and it's the job of intelligence agencies to try and read those tea leaves anyway, but we really have no idea. And we'll find out in time. My broader question is, does it matter? <laughs> um, and and I say that for two reasons. Number one is that we are right now in a situation of global crisis where even the major powers that would typically pay very close attention to who is in charge in North Korea and what they're doing are occupied elsewhere. They have other fish to fry. And I note that North Korea launched missiles at the end of March. They launched missiles and um, some fighter jets with air-to-surface missiles uh, in the middle of April. And nobody noticed because we have other priorities right now. And, you know, the North Korean regime, I think is in a world generally right now where life is pretty good for them. They are not facing pressure from the United States because President Trump has made it clear that he thinks that writing nice letters and and going for nice walks is the way to uh, get things done with North Korea. Never mind, it hasn't had any results. And because there isn't really a broader international coalition that is concerned enough about North Korean missile development and nuclear weapons development, that it's willing to put additional pressure on them. And the Chinese are not putting additional pressure on them. So, you know, whatever it is the North Koreans want, if they want to just be left alone to do their nuclear weapons development and do their missile development, do their thing and, you know, maintain their regime, they're in really good shape right now. And, it, you know, whether it's this guy or his sister or his kid, I don't see that changing anytime soon. You know, you guys mentioned that train. You know, this would have been an obvious opportunity for a weekend at Bernie's situation. You know, just put him, bring him <laughs> out on the caboose. Out the yeah. yeah, his Yay. sister's sitting right there next to him. She's waving the hand, you know, it would yeah. be totally fine, you know. Well, I'll see. Well, speaking of things that don't know if they're dead or alive, Congress. Oh, cruel, cruel. (laughs) Very nice. The segue game is very sharp today. Uh, A federal appeals court this week heard arguments in a pair of cases involving disputes between the president and the House, which, of course, is controlled by Democrats, that each raise a really big question, a big constitutional question, uh, which is, can a chamber of Congress sue the executive branch? Ben, we don't expect you to answer that question, but lay out what the arguments here are in this case. Okay. So this is, first of all, this was the full DC circuit, uh, which is to say, you know, not a panel, but the full court. It heard arguments that I, I don't know, I didn't look at the final timestamp, but they were probably close to three hours, maybe longer. Um, So they, they went into this in real depth and it was in two contexts. The first is the House subpoena to Don McGahn, the former White House counsel, after the release of the Mueller report. McGahn, you will recall, stiffed the subpoena and the House sued to enforce it. And the Justice Department representing Don McGahn has argued that the House has no authority to litigate to enforce its subpoena. The second case, which was argued 
together with the first case, because it kind of raises the same issue or a very closely related issue, is the president, you'll remember, decided he was going to fund the border wall, even though Congress did not appropriate money for it in response to his request. The House, as the House, sued to stop him. And the administration, again, argues that the House cannot sue the executive branch. So this sounds like a a deranged, extravagant Trumpist position on executive power. And in important respects, it is. But it is also a historic position of the executive branch, uh, at least since the uh, Supreme Court decision in a case called Reigns. And it's a... uh, one that we have always avoided actually kind of finding out what the real what the reality to it is because in past episodes like this that the congress and the administration tend to reach accommodations so the dc circuit held a very long set of arguments in this and uh i think it looks like the full court will side with the house that's my kind of gut at least on the McGann matter. The other case, the the Mnuchin case, is, I think, a closer matter, and the D.C. Circuit seems pretty conflicted, but kind of looking for a way to rule narrowly with the House. So I would say this is a, it's a super important set of questions. It has really big separation of powers implications, and uh, it matters a lot who wins, particularly if you imagine that this is a way station before the Supreme Court, but whatever the D.C. Circuit does could be mooted out by the election if Biden were to win. And so you could imagine this decision coming down and being the court's last word on this for a very long time, particularly if Biden wins. So I think it's a very important case. Ben, I have a question for you that's maybe not a legal question, but sort of a, a strategy question. And I it, I feel like when we've discussed these issues over the last months, there's a, there's a dilemma here for Congress or specifically for the House and for congressional Democrats. On the one hand, they want to engage in aggressive oversight of this executive, both for uh, separation of powers, you know, prerogatives of the Congress reasons, but also because they think that he's doing corrupt and nefarious things and they want to constrain him. And they need to be able to show the Democratic base that they are trying to hold the executive accountable. At the same time, the closer we get to November, the more they pursue these prerogatives through these court cases and through, you know, doing additional oversight efforts that may prompt new court cases the more vulnerable they are to the argument from Republicans that all they're interested in is investigating and they're not doing anything for the people. (laughs) Um, I mean, you know, to what extent do you think that congressional Democrats are doing this because they feel if they don't, you know, Congress loses its purpose? And to what extent are they sensitive to the political risk? They are exquisitely sensitive to the political risk. Remember, the client here is one Nancy Pelosi, right? And, you know, this is not a group of people who lack political savvy about what they're doing. That said, I think the D.C. Circuit panel put them in a very difficult position because they went to enforce the McGann subpoena 
when McGann took this uh, genuinely remarkable position that a congressional subpoena was order, you know, demanding his testimony. And he just said, I'm immune because the president says I shouldn't testify. And so I think at that point, they had to move to enforce. And having moved to enforce, they then win at the district court level. And McGahn goes to the D.C. Circuit. And the D.C. Circuit says the House can't even sue. Now, once they say that, you can't let that stand because that's a precedential action if it stands. So they have to go to the full D.C. Circuit. So they did. And now I think if you could just kind of let the D.C. Circuit rule and then make this go away, that would be a great outcome for Nancy Pelosi. But then the administration appeals it. And so I think they are very sensitive to the point that you're raising, the large importance of this case is not whether Don McGahn is going to testify. It's whether future people who are subpoenaed get to stiff the subpoena or whether they have to show up. Yeah. And I'd actually make even a broader assertion uh, or sort of formulation of Ben's last point, which is what's at stake here is whether or not compliance with congressional oversight is mandatory or optional for the executive branch when there is a divided Congress and and the two chambers are held by different political parties. Because the landscape that we've heretofore been operating in is one in which uncertainty plays a really large and important role in that both sides don't know the absolute constitutional answer of whether the court is going to weigh in and who would actually win. And that produces pressure for the executive branch and Congress to accommodate one another because neither side wants to really, really have to test these propositions because they might lose. And so what we have here is a situation of hardball in which you know, for for reasons that I think are not especially related to the longstanding position of the executive branch on the scope of executive power and far more related to um, the president's obstructionist tendencies and, and desire to actually evade oversight and uh, prevent information uh, from getting to the public, um, right, push this to the limit. And so I, I think Ben's right in describing sort of everybody's hand have, as having been forced. Um, one question I do think Congress needs to be focused on, and the House particularly needs to be focused on, is what happens if they lose, either at the D.C. Circuit or at the Supreme Court? Because that's not returning back to the prior status quo. That's an entirely new situation in which they need to fundamentally rethink their tools of oversight and start playing a form of hardball, not based around sort of subpoenas, but really flexing inherent contempt authority, really flexing appropriations authorities, finding other ways to impose costs on an executive branch that does not want to comply with oversight. And the other piece that I think Congress needs to figure out is how they make these questions politically relevant, because there is one area in which Trump has called the bluff and won, and that's that he has accurately said the public doesn't really care. 
I won't really pay a substantial political price if I just say no. People, my base won't draw those negative inferences if I refuse to produce oversight documents. The public writ large will just kind of shrug and give up about my tax returns, right? That there are, you know, hundreds of different examples at, at this point. And, and while it is difficult to, to admit this, um, because certainly it's not structurally, you know, how this is supposed to function, it turns out that he's right and that people do kind of shrug and lose interest. And so that political pressure is actually not playing a role now and, and potentially won't be playing a role forward. And so I think Ben's right that, that everybody's hand has been forced here. But I, I also am a little bit alarmed that to not see more evidence of the House thinking five and six steps ahead here about what does the oversight world look like post-McGann, post-border wall, if they lose, because that could be an incredibly alarming situation, um, you know, with really, really, you know, substantial sort of ramifications for Congress's ability to do the core of its legislative function. All right. Now let's turn to one of our core functions, object lessons. Susan, do you want to start off? I do. Um, so my object lesson is I personally love living in Washington, D.C. I was born here and am a, a hugely wounded and offended to hear people describe it as the swamp, except in the fact that, of course, it actually is a swamp. Um, and swamps have mosquitoes. And it, it now was a swamp. It, it was, was a swamp. swamp. It's been drained. It's a former swamp. Exactly. <laughs> Um, and now that I am facing the reality of a Washington, D.C. summer in my like incredibly tiny concrete covered backyard, the idea of having to also deal with thousands of mosquitoes is just too much to bear. And so my husband went out, went out, went on the Internet and found this thing arrived unbeknownst to me at our doorstep. It's called the Patriot Plus Mosquito Magnet. Oh it my is God. about the size of, I don't know, like a mini refrigerator. And it's it, named for an anti-missile battery? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. These people awesome. are not messing around. Um, it is <laughs> propane-powered. Oh, it shit. runs 24 <laughs> hours a day. And it, like, attracts the mosquitoes. And then you have to put it out early because much, as we've learned with coronavirus, if you eliminate a mosquito early on, that really is, like, getting rid of thousands of mosquitoes down the road. Anyway, it is my... It is my um, rational security <laughs> object lesson because what's to your ex- carbon offset for this thing? <laughs> it, it will we will never make up for it. Um, <laughs> but if I can use my backyard this summer, it will have been worth it. I'm sorry, Earth. Um, but really, this is an object lesson to my neighbors, just to reassure them that we are not building a bomb in our backyard <laughs> because I'm pretty sure. They think that's what's happening. And if I were to get a glimpse of our backyard, I would also think maybe the lunatics next door were building some kind of bomb. But it's not. It's just 
a mosquito apocalypse. Okay, um, so wow. two things, Susan. First of all, we're going to need an after-action report on this object lesson. Uh, does it work? And the second thing is, where do all the mosquitoes end up, and what do you do with them? So I absolutely will report back, although I feel like this is one of the situations where, like, even if the mosquitoes are bad, we would have to be like, well, maybe they would be worse, right? It's like, it's for the Patriot Plus people, like, they're playing with the bank's money, like, they win no matter <laughs> what. And they know we're not sending this back because it's just too large. Um, but I, I will give an after action report. And yeah, the Patriot Plus. Can use as mosquitoes to make it. Compost. Literally, its tagline is "taking back neighborhoods one backyard at a time." <laughs> awesome. I think my husband is looking at this on Amazon as we speak. Um, <clears throat> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But wait, where do the mosquitoes go? What happens oh, to the mosquitoes? Oh, um, there's like a trap in the middle, and so there's like, oh, you also have to order mosquito attractant. Which is like something that attracts and it lives in the middle and then the mosquitoes go in this trap. Um, And my husband has tried to get me to look at it, but I don't want to look at it because I don't want to be involved in this. Just in general. Um, (laughs) But I will, I'll do some research and take a picture of the mosquito trap area, Ben, and, and send it to you. Our audio engineer, Ian, says he's more of an Iron Dome mosquito defense system. (laughs) Doesn't have that natural gas taste. Uh, Oh, geez. Uh, Tammy, what's your object? Okay. Can I just say, this is proof that you can militarize anything in this country. Um, Okay. (sighs) So... (laughs) We used to, when we sat in the jungle studio all together and smiled at one another across the table, we used to drink scotch together sometimes when we recorded Rational Security. I miss those days, guys. But if there is one thing that has emerged from the coronavirus shelter-in-place orders, and this has been discussed in the media, it is the return of cocktail hour. And I, I will admit, I don't mind this at all. Um, I'm a beneficiary of my husband's keen interest in new interest, I must say, in mixology, which has brought to our house over the last week two really thick, heavy hardcover books with cocktail recipes. And as a gift to me, something truly delightful, a little box containing five little bottles from the Strongwater Mountain Elixir Company containing five different kinds of cocktail bitters. Ooh. Yum. I I have so far tried two of them. They are quite lovely in my classic old-fashioned. Oh, bitters are the best. Flavored bitters are so great, too. Yeah. Oh, Shane, you got to check these out. I'll I'll send you deets. I'm you looking at the picture now that you put out. Oh, my God. Those look great. Those look great. And, you know, you can just put bitter straight into a whiskey, too. It doesn't even need to be a cocktail. Indeed. And it's lovely. Or just even in gin, if you want to make a variation on a pink gin. It just wakes up the flavors. It does. It's magical. It is. And unlike bleach, it's safe to drink. <laughs> it's like a cleaning out. Cleaning out of the palate. Maybe don't inject it into your veins. (laughs) Can I just say? Don't waste it. Non medical opinion. 
when when we're talking about that, people have focused too much on the bleach and disinfectant side, and, and not, not enough. enough on the idea of injecting ultraviolet light Thank into you. your inner organs. What does that even mean? I I was so perplexed by this because on the one hand, I was just like thinking like, well, what does he mean? Like up your butt? And I was like, no, wait, he literally means like blasting you with light. And I'm like, Where, what, what are you I talking mean, about? Like imagining like, like maybe it's because he spends time in a tanning bed. No, or I think that's, I think that's it. Because he said he's like, you know, which can be done. And he said it like, trust me, I know. I'm like, where, where, what do you think is happening when you That's go into the he's bed? so robust and healthy, Shane, because he lies on a tanning bed every day. I just, I mean, does he think that it's penetrating and like tanning his like, his, his like pancreas? Liver. I mean, yeah. I just, his I liver was, is the most tan. Ben, I'm with you. The light one was just to me. That was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is not getting enough attention. And then when he said he was asking sarcastically about the disinfectant, he never mentioned the light. I'm like, so were you serious about the light? Totally serious about the light. I mean, it's like, you know, I need another show about this. Anyway. Come to the light, Mr. President. (laughs) Run to the light, Carol Ann. Um, I have an object. My book is a novel that I have just started reading called Empire City by an excellent writer uh, named Matt Gallagher, uh, who is, among other things, a U.S. Army veteran and also a graduate of Wake Forest, my alma mater. Um, Listeners may know some of his other books, the novel Youngblood, and he wrote a memoir called Kaboom, Embracing the Suck in a Savage Little War. Um, So Empire City is his new novel. And I, I don't want to give away too much of it. And to be honest, I have only just started. I'm about a quarter of the way through and I'm still kind of waiting to see where it goes. But it's inter- it's basically it's it's sort of an alternate history that's set 30 years after the U.S. wins the Vietnam War, which kind of immediately made me think of Watchmen, which was a great show. But the United States has become en- admired in just endless foreign wars overseas. And it sort of has become it's it's almost like the kind of the exponential version of the nightmare that everyone thought about when we were going into Iraq and are we just going to be locked in endless foreign wars. But it is, it's just beautifully written and really intriguing and kind of mysterious. And it plays with a lot of themes and ideas that I think that listeners of the podcast will like. And as I said, you know, Matt served in the military and he brings just a very sharp eye to the culture of people who are in the military, to the politics of it. And it, it just reads like someone who has spent time in that world, but is doing something very different um, with the fiction around it. So check it out. It actually just came out yesterday, Tuesday, uh, Empire City by Matt Gallagher. And I will put a link to it on the show page because, you know, you have lots of time to read these days. I'm reading so much more, by the way. Are you guys reading more? As I am. <laughs> I'm I'm so not. I just, I find, I just, I don't know. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's, it's obviously a distraction, but I just, I'm not a fast reader, but boy, I'm binging lately. Uh, and you've been binging another edition of our podcast, but that's the end. And we're very glad you came. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can find propane for your mosquito Patriot battery. Patriot uh, plus. Mosquito <laughs> magnets. <laughs> I actually, I want to see little tiny missiles arcing to intercept the mosquitoes in the yard. Oh, yeah. Little propane. Like a mushroom cloud for each mosquito. Actually, have you guys ever seen the video of the prototype mosquito laser zapper that uh, was created as a malaria control device by the 
Seattle making this up. No, 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 no. I'm totally serious. It's like, please do not give my husband any more ideas. Mosquitoes and shoots them out of the air, but it's never been commercially produced. Shocking. Shockingly. I would put one in my backyard. You can you can find a prototype on lawfaremosquitostore.blog. Indeed, with that URL, <laughs> you could follow us on Twitter at ratl security. Be sure to keep a look out there for more details on our live show on the thirteenth. You can find us on Facebook as well. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave us a rating and review. It really helps others find the show, and we appreciate it very much. Our audio engineer this week is Ian Enright from Goat Rodeo. The show is produced and edited, as always, by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Xi Jinping, lip syncing the Milli Vanilli hit Blame It on the Rain. Oh, yeah. There's like a dozen. Blame it on the train? There's two jokes in there. Well, it was Blame It on Beijing, but it's lip syncing because Milli Vanilli. Uh huh. Yeah. Very sad. What Milli Vanilli are these days? What what shame holds? Home self isolation, of course. (laughs) Go, Go investigate that. This is their moment, the Millie Vanilli reunion Zoom tour. <laughs> you can sing along. They're going to join us for the live show two weeks from today. <laughs> Sophia Yan will be hosting. On behalf of my good friends, uh, whatever your names are, Ben Wittes, Tamara Coffee Wittes, and Susan Edison, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you guys next week. Bye-bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 